Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Fluently Forward. For this week's episode, I'm really excited for today's guest, Molly McPherson. And you know, some episodes of Fluently Forward, we are the floozies. It's scandals, it's blind items, it's celebrity threesomes, everything in between. And then for some episodes, we're more of the forward thinkers over here, thinking about topics and why something is and sociologically, psychologically, what's going on with people. This is a little bit of both. Molly is incredibly impressive. She's I've watched her videos on TikTok. I've listened to her podcast, which is called Indestructible PR Podcast with Molly McPherson. She's a public relations expert, and she is all about how to handle a crisis. And she talks about different crises, crises <laughs> that happen, both with celebrities, both with companies, both with individuals in your own life that could happen. So she kind of talks about PR mistakes that happen, celebrity apology statements, and we dive all into that in this episode. So really fun content for you this week. We're going to be talking about what makes a scandal. We're going to be talking about celebrities using the Notes Apology app, where they place their apologies, how they get into scandals, what makes their apology or their statements fishy, authentic, everything in between. And we're also going to talk about how social media plays a role in kind of like lighting the fire on these scandals online. And also why we as humans kind of love it when somebody's getting dragged. And I feel like last week's, or I guess last Friday's Patreon episode pairs really well with this because we just did over on Patreon blind items about Donald Trump and his family. And if there's anyone who goes hand in hand with a scandal, it's certainly Donald Trump. So we got all into his dirt over there, Melania, Ivanka, Donald Trump Jr., Eric. Well, I mean, really all of them. The only person who didn't have a blind item was Baron Trump. And I would say just give it a couple of years and he'll be there too. So if you want to check that out, patreon.com slash fluently forward. And without further ado, introducing Molly. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another lovely guest episode of Fluently Forward. I am so excited to have on the wise, talented, fierce Molly McPherson on the podcast. Welcome to the show, Molly. How are you doing? The best descriptor that you said was fierce. I love that. Oh, I'm so <laughs> excited to be speaking with you on the podcast. Big fan. Right back at you. I'm so excited to have you on. I was introduced to you, I think I yeah, I first started watching your TikTok videos, but Emily Rose is a mutual friend of ours, and I know that you guys have done some great episodes together. And I have been obsessed with your content because you cover... PR, crisis communication, and the way that this ties, obviously there can be a crisis in any industry, but the way that this ties into pop culture and your take on it, I always find so refreshing because you're not, you know, no shade to teenagers on TikTok, but you're not a teenager on TikTok. You've got 20 years of experience in this field and you always... I every time I listen to you, I feel completely sane, rational, and like I have my head screwed on straight. So I would love to hear from you, first of all, what has it been like being on TikTok in the social media world where you're talking about topics next to like 19-year-olds and 23-year-olds? Then the PR is working on my behalf. If you are coming yeah. away thinking that I am the seasoned PR veteran who knows exactly what she's talking about at all time, then it's working. Uh, I am. <laughs> I feel like what you're saying in a very complimentary way is somewhat of a euphemism for you know, creating this dialogue around public relations and pop culture, but with people who are 
not of the same generation as me. I mean, I understand that. I have I am of an alt generation for TikTok. And I only came into the platform like many people during the pandemic. You know, I jumped in. I got a lot of information from it, but I really sat back and thought, I need if I'm if I work in public relations and I know that social media is a huge component in any public relations crisis. It has to be factored in in my job. And I felt like I needed to jump in. And I jumped in in a way where I didn't know what I was, like most people, I did not know what I was doing. And I was always aware of the risk of someone who works in crisis PR going on a platform where all these PR crises happen. But mm-hmm. it's but for what everyone else gets out of it, and thank you, you know, for sharing your feedback um, t- with me about, you know, my account, what I get from it is the feedback from others because that's what really generates and powers this account is the is the mutual dialogue, you know, the back and forth. It's just not, it's not just about the post. It's what happens with that post when it lands in the hands of other users. And to me, when and, and when that meets a public relations crisis, wow, is that interesting. I am as interested as everyone else is talking about it. Yeah. I mean, wh- what do you think makes us so... I know that different studies have been done about how I feel like lately everybody's like, oh, the news is so depressing, but it's depressing on purpose because people are drawn to clicking on sad and inflammatory headlines more than they are about positive ones. But what do you think it is about human nature that makes us so giddy with joy anytime a scandal erupts? Like, you know, we feel sad initially and then we just get so wickedly, I don't know, pleased by scandals happening online. Why do you think that is? I I don't want to bury the lead of what you just said. I think so much of what is happening online is because of clicks. Okay. And mm-hmm. I will always come back to that. But I also think what you're mentioning is schadenfreude. People like to witness other people going through it. It makes them feel better. It does. Everyone has been through it since 2020. Uh, 2020 worked its way into, you know, the pandemic worked its way into race issues. And then race issues were working in its way into other issues, you know. And from that, before that, we had Me Too issues. It seems like we're always going through something. And watching someone else fail or flail becomes uh, almost like a reality television show. You know, it hits the same spot in the brain where it just allows us to kind of release our own stress and watch someone else's. It's almost like, you know, like a dopamine hit is seen. You know, if someone else goes through it, then you don't have to, or it makes you feel better. But that's, I don't know, that's my perspective. Yeah. And I think what's interesting too is I remember back when Stephen Colbert was on the Colbert Report, he got canceled for some... And when when I say canceled, everybody I feel like is is very inflammatory about that word. Just just know I'm using it as a blanket statement for like online pushback. Mm -hmm. But he was getting, you know, canceled for some tweet and it was over the weekend and he had all these funny jokes because, you know, he was like, oh, I tweeted on Friday. They wanted to cancel Colbert, hashtag cancel Colbert. And he's like, and I was canceled for three days just like Jesus. But then I came back on Monday and he did this really funny bit on it. Who would have thought a means of communication limited to 140 characters would ever create misunderstandings? And I'm always fascinated by how I feel like scandals erupt on Twitter and TikTok more than I think any other social media platform, even Instagram, because they're so focused on keeping things short, brevity, brevity, brevity. And I'll even see my podcast get clipped sometimes and people will be like, well, you didn't mention this. You didn't say that. Yeah, it's it's 60 seconds out of an hour long podcast. We get into it later. But there's something so fascinating about 
on TikTok and Twitter, if somebody says a sentence, but then they don't say another sentence, you assume what that sentence is. And I'm very curious from your perspective, do you think those problems will always exist on short form social media? Or do you think that there's a way that you can always be nuanced and explain more, more, more to evade that type of pushback? Yeah, you you understand the patterns of a crisis. What that is, is the context crisis. It happens all the time. It happened to me yesterday. You know, I posted on mm. TikTok. I did a podcast about Scott Adams, uh, the creator of Dilbert and why he was, you know, quote unquote canceled, but he actually was canceled. You know, he was removed um, by publishers and newspapers also lost a book deal. And part of the reason why he ended up in this crisis is because he expected the public to understand the context of why he was talking about racism. And I was saying in my three-minute TikTok post, he was using the wrong medium. Like he was expecting the public to sit and watch and hang on every word that he said on a YouTube live stream and, Mm -hmm. and every subsequent interview that he did after that. He was putting the onus on the public. No one has the time, the patience. They don't care. No one is going to take the time to try and figure out what you have to say in your context. They're going to blast you. So in the the ironic post of me talking about what Scott Adams did, then people are coming at me saying, well, how could you say that he's not racist? You know, then I did, you know, another post. So it's that context piece. But I will tell you, I think everything is changing right now. Last Mm. week, I was interviewed for Axios, the communication email that's from Eleanor Hawkins. So she writes about the communication culture, and we were talking about the social media crisis. And I was telling her that the the social media crisis used to live and die on Twitter. Everything was about hashtags. So hashtag me too. So, you know, Bill Cosby got spun in it, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, you know, all of those me too victims of the cancel culture all happened on Twitter. So it was a crisis that happened within 20, 280 characters, one It was 140, now it's 280 characters. But those were just words. Now, because of TikTok and short-form video, Mm. people expect a short-form video response. And if that's not there, then they'll get the statement on Instagram. And is it going to be Mm. grid or is it going to be stories? So now it almost seems as if if you see a notes app apology in Twitter, it, it appears less transparent than it was couple years ago, you could use the Twitter notes app before for a crisis. I don't think you can nowadays. Interesting. And what I find really fascinating too is, like you said, there's all these different, each celebrity or public figure now, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're on LinkedIn, they're freaking everywhere. And I find it so funny when people always choose to put their apology out on their platform that didn't give them their popularity. Like I remember when David Dobrik got canceled, he's, his apology was on David Dobrik 2 channel, yes. which was a channel that he very infrequently updated. And that was where he put out mm-hmm. his apology. And of course, everybody passes it around. So let's kind of, I would love to hear, there's many different angles of this. When a public figure or a celebrity has to apologize. And my first question to you is, what is the best way to do it? Is it the notes app? Is it words on Twitter? Is it a video? What medium do you think has the best kind of success rate? Well, you bring up the good, you know, you bring up the good point about where you are replying. You know, I think, you know, like Andrew Callahan, for instance, did the exact same thing when he was canceled. And you did a great, I just listened to your podcast episode about him. He's uh, all gas, no breaks, right? Yes. I used to watch his YouTube videos. All gas, no breaks. And when he posted his apology, it was on his 
personal YouTube channel that had, you know, very low numbers on there. So that mm. is a strategic move to find those, you know, alt platforms to get your uh, apology out there because everyone knows it's going to be shared. I feel that no one has the answer. There is no playbook right now. It is case by case by case. I do think what they're looking for in terms of a spin team or, you know, when you hire your firm to come in, they're trying to respond, but respond in a way that doesn't create engagement because it's all about the algorithm now. And yeah, which by the way, how funny is it? Typically YouTubers are like, by the way, leave a comment, smash that like button. Like you don't get that in the apology video. Nobody's like tag your friend, like share it, blast it. It is the opposite, right? Like they yeah. are looking for ways to create the least amount of engagement. So when you need to promote something, you are going to go all with the engagement. However, what they're working against is you know, TikTok, Instagram, looking for these words, you know, that stick out, anything in caps, you know, hashtags, people complaining. Social media looks for that type of a language. So it's always a dance. So that's why I look to I look at them case by case by case. I do believe, and I'm assuming you follow these as much as I do, when I see an apology in an IG stories that's going away in 24 hours, to me, that's the weakest, okay? And it's understandable. They want it to vanish because they don't want the press to pick it up because that's another element of it. If the legacy press can embed an apology in their news story, it's going to create more engagement. No one's going to embed an Instagram stories. Now, the next step too, like a lot of people will go to stories. That's the new notes app, in my opinion, but they make it incredibly difficult to read. They make it hard for a newspaper to take out, you know, the text and put it in there. So strategically, it's how do you get it out, but not out enough where you have to deal with it or that it strikes back at you? Well, speaking of things being hard to read, I've seen, I mean, we've all seen so many different apologies and statements from public figures over the years. And I have seen some that are grammatically incorrect, have typos in them, and you don't even know what the hell they're saying. Is that a strategy? I've just always thought, oh God, this is, you know, some Hollywood idiot who doesn't know how to string together a sentence. But is that you know, making it kind of vague and meandering. Is that a tactic? Um, I 100% see you and I think the same. I look for that because you're looking for the natural cadence, the language. So I'm picturing their fixer saying to them first, just write your statement. Just give us the first draft. Tell us what you're thinking. So they understand where they're coming from, but also what their language is. And I honestly believe that these statements are manufactured in a way that it is a morph of of getting the point across in their language. So I do think that it is being wordsmithed in a way to make people believe that it's coming straight from them. Interesting. Well, my other question too is what's the right length for an apology? And I know it's probably on a case-by-case -case basis, but is there some sort of, you know, you're not getting a return, like after three minutes, people stop listening, or if it's only 45 seconds, people won't think it's sincere enough. Is there some kind of magic number if you are doing it verbally? Well, so again, it all goes back to the algorithm, right? Like that's where my head is going now. And I, I teach college courses. So that's why I spend time trying to look at it from an academic point of view as well. Because if you are going to do a video, like ultimately, I would always say, give me the first person video. 
and I want to see you. I want to look you in the eye. I, I want to. I want to see how you feel. I don't want to read how you. Do you, you feel. watch for um, crying? Like, how, where do you feel about crying or fake tears? We we don't like that, right? Because anything yes. that's disingenuous <laughs> is going to kill you. Okay, it's it's yeah. it's it's out because we are with a generation of crime talk out there and true crime people. They can spot anyone who's being inauthentic because we're so it's so drummed. Inauthenticity is so drummed into us to be able to spot it. So now, if you do these apology videos and it's three minutes, well, now you're falling into the algorithm. And that video is going to be seen by more people. And that's almost the opposite effect that you want. Mm. So now it feels as if these one-off statements are the better things to do. Like you, because they can't hide if they're inarticulate or you worry about them showing genuine remorse, or if it's someone like who's on a reality television show, we're not going to have anything genuine. So I think the PR fallback now in terms of celebrities is just to go to Instagram and to squeeze as many words in as you can in the smallest font that is legible. Yes, it's always so right? small. Yeah. That even if it gets put into a paper, it's never going to be put into the print edition ever. It will only be in the online editions. And it's pixelated in a way that you can't read it. Like, I truly believe that that is a strategic move. And that's the reason why they do it. But celebrity PR yeah. is different from corporate PR. Corporate PR can definitely cannot get away with that. And corporate PR would also never do a video response, right? I feel like it's always statements and sometimes... Well, oh, actually, yeah. they absolutely do is when it, looking back at, you know, Boeing, the CEO of Boeing, when they were going through their crisis, he went on video. Southwest Airlines in December, their CEO went on video and it was posted to Twitter. It was posted on their website, but nobody watched it. I just gave a talk about this very thing. Yeah, I didn't even know that happened. And I showed it on the screen and I said, how many of you saw the post from the CEO? No one saw it. I'm like, yeah. okay, well, how many of you saw posts like this? And I started putting TikToks on there because people watch TikToks. They don't watch CEOs on screen anymore, but CEOs definitely do it. Way products. Let me tell you a little bit about them. If you, like me, get a little bit embarrassed when you go get a blowout at the salon because you go, uh-oh, I'm not 110% confident in the health of my scalp. Well, join me, fellow flakers, and we can talk about the new scalp care product from Way, which is going to be their anti-dandruff shampoo. It fights flakes and it soothes your scalp. Let's be honest. I'm only being vulnerable about this because every single person I talk to Everyone has issues with dandruff or at least doesn't feel like 100% confident in their scalp. So Way is going to help you to stop flaking on your plans this spring with their anti-dandruff shampoo. They also have a detox shampoo that gives your scalp and your hair a rest. It's good for oiliness, unwanted shine, flaky or dry scalp. And also they have a scalp serum. So this is going to balance and hydrate your scalp. You just put a few drops in it with either wet or dry hair. It soothes irritation, keeps your hair stronger and fuller. So the way to healthy hair this season and beyond starts here. You can go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and use code FLUENTLY for 15% off your entire purchase. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and the code is FLUENTLY. Do you think that I'm so obsessed with this idea of bot farms and bot teams? Do you think that one day, let's say in the future, Southwest Airlines has another crisis problem? Do you think that they might enact some sort of new strategy where they could hire, uh, I don't know, 
a hundred small scale TikTokers to make videos about how much they loved their flight with Southwest or things like that, knowing that a lot of people are more plugged into the algorithm than they are Southwest.com. And maybe that would kind of sway the public opinion more than a statement from them. This is why I love this level of influence that people like you and Emily Rose and all the other people out there who, you know, you get labeled with this celebrity gossip person, but truly (laughs) you understand how it works. So hearing that back, yes. Mm. First time in my career, in the last few talks that I've been giving, I am talking about bot response in a crisis. I 100% believe that bots do contribute to a crisis, definitely in the commentary, because they're looking for it. But also, we are not that far away if it hasn't happened already. You know, celebrity court cases, you know, people, you know, getting into the bot world. Do I think it could happen from a corporate point of view? Absolutely. But the danger is people expect to see bot language when it's Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. If it's an airline, people might become a little more suspicious when they see all of these people all of a sudden defending a sleazy CEO or defending it. Yeah. It might, it's so out of context, but no, I love Chipotle so much. It's my favorite. Like what? How dare you talk about? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So there's going to be a dance there, but I absolutely think the bot response is going to be a part of the playbook. Wow. It, it's really interesting to me. And I know, I mean, I, I recently kind of quit TikTok. Don't know if I'll ever be back because I feel like the app has just gone downhill, but I, any video of mine that would go over 500,000 views, I would see bots in there and they would always be taking the same, you know, one of the most popular sentences that probably a normal person would comment, you know, ha ha, LMFAO, this video made me gag. I don't know, let's just say it was that. And if you keep scrolling, scrolling, scrolling past all the comments that already have likes and you get to the comments that have zero likes and are new, it would be the exact same sentence. Ha ha ha, LMFAO, this video made me gag 17 times by user, blah, blah, blah. And these weren't even bots with an agenda. I think personally that TikTok has bots that comment on different people's videos because almost every single person who posts videos on TikTok, they've all had a moment where they've gone viral. Why isn't that way for Instagram? Why isn't it that way for Twitter? I think that TikTok is hiring bots to make everybody feel this sense of going viral that everybody's so addicted to. So I think even if it's not for drama, bots will just ramp people up because it doesn't make sense that not everyone I talk to is on TikTok, but every single person I know who posts videos on TikTok has had over a million views at this point. I don't share that in everyone I know, but a lot of people, I think from your perspective, I see that without a doubt. And just the mileage on TikTok is constantly changing. Yes, I'm with you on that. But I have to ask you now, you not being on that platform, what has it done for you as, you know, the Fluently Forward brand? Well, I mean, I'm so grateful to TikTok because I think that's how almost everyone who listens to the podcast found me. But I just felt like TikTok really has changed. And you said that you also joined around the time of the pandemic. Did you say that? Um, a year ago. I joined a year ago. 
Okay. Yeah. So I, I joined like 2020 right in the thick of it. And it was almost like the early days of Tumblr where TikTok was so fun. There weren't any mean comments. There wasn't a lot of discourse. It was just kind of like Vine, like wacky humor and people dancing and every single person on the app would try to learn a dance routine. And then maybe it would be a fun trend of like that co- whipped coffee to make that everyone was doing. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, it went from early days Tumblr to later days Tumblr and Twitter where everything was discourse. Everything was stitching five seconds of someone's minute long video and then talking about why you were triggered by that section. And everything it just started to feel like the news, you know, or people saying divine masculine this, here's why your boyfriend's cheating on you. Here's how you can look prettier. Here's how you should spend money on this. And I really started to feel like I was a lab rat on TikTok. And I was like, oh my God, they're either trying to sell me stuff or someone's trying to promote their Amazon storefront or they're getting mad about some word that's being misinterpreted. And I just felt like this isn't bringing anything good to my life anymore. And I've been really on a kick of reading these books about how social media is worse for us. And basically a lot of the books say you don't need to get rid of all social media, but try to focus on just two apps because that's kind of the sweet spot rather than having like six. Yes. Now, may I ask you, where's your focus? It's podcast. Yeah. Podcasting number one. And then I'm promoting it on like uh, Instagram and YouTube or doing more video clips, which I think is fun for folks. Yes. Okay. Now I agree with you about one of the challenges of TikTok and something I do not like on TikTok at all is the social media vigilantism. And they have, there's three creators in particular that have, you know, verified, I think they're all verified, blue checked, where they just go after people. And I'm sure, you know, just like I I get it, I get all the people, you know, sending me, you know, all of this, you know, information, um, you know, videos and things like that. But it's this retribution piece of it. And you're right. They take a clip. They might take a minute because it's happened to me too. And it is so frustrating for me seeing other content creators splicing 30, 10 seconds, and then they're going to they're going to optimize their message by using you on your back. Nothing drives me more crazy on that. So that's one piece of it. But yes, it's the, again, that context crisis. And so TikTok, I am not a all in. It's the best app. I mean, there is a reason why the federal government and schools are starting to clamp down on it. And it matches how people feel even in a crisis. It's that lack of control. It feels like TikTok is the lack of control app because any, every time I post on there, I think, what's going to happen? Is this the post that cancels me? Is this the post, you know, that changes my life? Um, But I do agree with you is you have to spread yourself, not thin. But you have to go where the people who really understand you and know who you are, uh, where where they congregate. I will be the first person to admit that TikTok absolutely changed the course of my business without a yeah. doubt and in terms of exposure. But I also understand the risks of it as well. Being a crisis communicator, I have to understand those risks. Yeah. And the cra- you know what the crazy thing about TikTok too is? I I think Reddit is also a very negative type of social media space. But the great thing about Reddit is that with each comment, you can see that entire person's comment history. So if somebody on Reddit is like, oh, I hate this, and they're being negative, you can go into their comment history and see that for the last two years, they've hated everything on every subreddit. But on TikTok, you don't have that same ability. So if somebody says, "Uh, I hate what you said, you don't get to say, oh my God, they leave hate comments for every single person. It's not something that I did wrong. So I think that facet of Reddit is pretty interesting. But 
what's fascinating too about TikTok is that so many people who are on it are very young. And, and because a lot of these people hide behind anonymous profiles, you're not sure how young they are. But I see this come through a lot when certain words or phrases take off on TikTok in a big way. And I think we saw this with the phrase narcissist and gaslight. Everybody was saying narcissist. Everyone was saying gaslight. And look, it exists, but I think the the rate of sociopaths is 5%, right? One out of every 20 people. So a narcissist is a more kind of low-key sociopath, where every sociopath is a narcissist, but not every narcissist is a sociopath. Mm -hmm. So there's no way. We're using the phrase narcissist at a rate much higher than 5%. So I think it just took off too far. And I also have been seeing the phrase PR be used, where people say this couple is dating, it's PR, they're doing this, but they're only doing it for PR. And PR is kind of this blanket statement where some people say, if it's for PR, then it's fake. But I think that some PR relationships could be for PR and they could also be real. So when you see people talking about PR on TikTok, what's kind of the TikTok definition you see versus the definition you use? Yeah. So, I mean, professionally, I'm, I'm, an, acc I'm an accredited public relations professional. I have my APR in it. And the true definition is just the mutual beneficial, it's a mutual beneficial relationship with two parties. It's a, someone who works in PR is trying to get press and working with reporters to get press. Every, it's that word mutually beneficial. But on TikTok, it's not. It's just one yeah. way. It's people looking at PR as leveraging or using or pulling one over or the term spin. Like spin to me is negative. Like I had a client came right from TikTok. They hired me to spin something for them. And I said, that's not what I do. I do not spin. Well, mm. but that's what I thought. I need to say this because I did that. And I said, well, that's just another way of saying you want to lie. <laughs> so I think on TikTok, it's people will diminish and dilute the word, but, but professionally speaking, it's, it's there for a reason to educate, to persuade, to help. Um, but in so many ways it's associated with cover and deceit. Makes it more interesting on TikTok. Oh, it does. People think PR equals fake rather than PR equals, you know, a plan for both parties. This formula that I've created, this indestructible PR, the idea behind it is you cannot be brought down if you do certain things in your response. You can't. And it was born out of this idea of the cancel culture. It really was. You know, why do some people get canceled and some people don't? I feel when you're authentic you take accountability, you acknowledge what's happening, people are going to start giving you either a pass or they'll let you get through it quicker. Because once you acknowledge it, it's not fun anymore to knock you down. You literally are deflating and taking away all the fun. And I have this in my book. I wrote, you're a needle at a balloon party. You know, you're just, you're mm. just deflating and popping all the fun out of bringing someone down when you acknowledge what it is. So it's all about taking that accountability. And then the next step of it is explaining it. And you can explain why you thought this and what you meant. But also the, the next step is committing to something. I'm going to commit to learning or committing to do it a little bit differently next time. Show people the journey and that's how you get through it. And the truth is, it's just not fun to bring. People will move on. The people and the bots will move on. And that's how you get through it. Caraway Cookware. I was so over the moon when we first got Caraway as a sponsor, because let me tell you, I have been lusting over their kitchenware. And I know that sounds weird, but I have for a very long time and trying it out. I've been cooking 
more. I've been excited to be into the kitchen. And I think it's because not only is cooking on these kitchenware items so easy, but the cleanup is such a breeze as well. And I'm sure you're just like me. There's something about working with an aesthetically pleasing product that just makes you want to use it more. It's like a little life hack for me. So not only are these Caraway products beautiful, they're also non-toxic. They're made without any toxic materials or any of those hard to pronounce chemicals. And they are also built for easy cooking. So they have a ceramic naturally slick surface. I'm cooking eggs on there. It's easy to fry them, flip them, everything. It's fantastic. So over 30,000 people have all also raved about their Caraway kitchen. Now it is time for you to try it for yourself. You can visit carawayhome.com fluently. Take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off of your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners. So visit carawayhome.com fluently, or you can use the code fluently at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. That idea of some scandals not being fun anymore and then some scandals living forever and that being tied to the idea of whether or not they're addressed. One scandal that always sticks out to me, and I'm dying to get your opinion on this, is um, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And I still, people still to this day make Monica Lewinsky jokes. And there's always going to be something about the president of the United States getting, you know, head from an intern that mm -hmm. is going to shock the world. But do you think that had President Clinton addressed it at the time? Because still, to you know, he denied, denied, did not have relations with that woman. Do you think that if a scandal like that had been addressed more up front, it wouldn't have kept steam for so long? Well, as someone, how old were you when that happened? Oh, young. I don't think I even knew what a blowjob was. You didn't was. even know? Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I knew it was something. Yeah. So I, I mean, I lived through it and I was fascinated by it. And they kept, the New York Post kept calling her the portly pepper pot. And I just felt for Monica Lewinsky that in that entire episode in her life is so incredibly tragic. But what you have at that time in the 90s with President Clinton was a president who lied. He was a liar. He was a cheater. He he was a politician in a he was existing as a politician, as all politicians and elected officials existed in the past, you know, under secrecy, undercover. It's not expected to know what was happening in someone's private life. Bill Clinton idolized President Kennedy. President Kennedy probably got away with more than any president. I'm just making that assumption, knowing my um, just history on that. But that's who he modeled himself after. So in that time, we the internet was so new that there what we didn't have this internet brigade out there that wanted to bring people down. All we had were journalists who you could contain, but the new aspect was the judge report. The drudge report is what brought down Bill Clinton. And that was brand new. If that did mm -hmm. not exist, it none of this ever would have happened. She would have been an intern that would have gone away. It was the mixture of the drudge report and then President Clinton lying in his testimony. Well, and also too, uh, Hillary Clinton too. I find it fascinating that in one of the interviews Hillary Clinton did before it came out, thank God Monica Lewinsky had that blue dress as yes. evidence yes. for this happening. But I remember Hillary Clinton was being interviewed and 
they asked her about what happened with uh, Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, and she called it part of a vast right-wing conspiracy, conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Yes. And as a conspiracy theorist, I sit back and I watch that video and I go, lie, lie, lie. You know, when, nobody ever apologizes to a conspiracy theorist. Oh, sorry, you were right. My husband did take advantage of that woman. You know, you're never going to hear her say that. But it was crazy to think that back in the day, they really thought they could get away with it, and they almost did. And they almost did. And when Hillary Clinton did that interview, it was on the Today Show, and I was watching mm-hmm. it. I remember where I was when I heard it. I was getting ready that morning, and I stopped what I was doing, and I turned to face the television, and my mouth dropped. I thought, wow, she is all in on this. And you're right about the blue dress. Bill Clinton did not expect a blue dress to pop up. This is a guy who got away with lies his whole life. Hillary Clinton was fully aware that her husband was a cheater, but she got something out of that. You know, there was a bargain in there for her that she was ascending to heights as well. But that period of our history, why I think it is so interesting, it was the first introduction of technology and digital media that really brought it down. Now, another, another aspect to it, and it really circles back to what you talked about with narcissism and gaslighting and all this language that appears on social media. Every public relations crisis includes a human crisis because public relations and human relations are intertwined. Every single PR crisis that I do, even working with clients today, the first thing, I'm not looking for what anybody did. I'm looking for what they said and how they reacted. I'm coming at it like a therapist. Who's lying? Who is the ego? Who has motive to cover something up? Where's the money? If you understand human relations, you can get to the bottom of a PR crisis. And and Bill and Hillary, that was just a marriage that a lot of people have seen. You know, someone, mm-hmm. a flander and a cheater and his wife who always puts up with it. So there's always that yeah. aspect as well. Well, and it's, it's very funny to watch crises like that, for example, for the Clintons and then crisis is for Donald Trump. And I feel like they go away quickly because everyone's just like, yeah, Trump's a fucker. So this isn't rocking my, you know, foundation as much as it is when something happens. I'm always fascinated, right, by the Bill Cosby and the Ellen DeGeneres, the way that the pendulum swings so far because they already have this great, oh, I'm just the neighborhood, blah, blah, blah type of reputation versus when something happens to um, Donald Trump or Jared Leto at Army Hammer. Everyone's like, yeah, well, that person's already a fucker. So they almost don't get as much blowback, even if they're doing something that's categorically worse. And part of that, that's a very good point that you bring up, is uh, some of those people had years and years of base building. You know, like uh, uh, Bill Cosby, years. I mean, starting with Fat Albert, and he was a comedian, and then he was beloved. You know, he was Dr. Huxtable. Those are decades worth of goodwill and mobilization around him being the good doctor and the good guy. And you have to chip away through a lot of that. Same thing with Donald Trump. The reason why he's so buoyed is because his base is so incredibly strong. But in time... People are going to start chipping away at it. Bill Cosby, we don't need to say anything more about that, right? Donald Trump, even now, most people you might even ask, uh, what's Donald Trump doing? They probably don't even know that he's running for president because that base isn't there anymore. So he's not quite as strong as he used to be. So when the base goes, they go. It's very interesting. And I I do wonder, too, if... Let's say that if you were a celebrity, you're on the rise, you're about to become a public figure and you don't have a huge, you're not like, I don't know, one of these A-listers who's been around as a child star, but you're Mm -hmm. new and you're coming onto the scene. 
professionally, what advice would you give them? Because I'm sure you would say, hey, you want an Instagram presence, you want a Twitter presence, but make sure you never go on Instagram live because that's going to get you into more hot water than it ever could give you a positive result. So if you had to kind of give like a one-on-one handbook to someone who's about to become someone in the Hollywood scene, what would you say? Do this, don't do that. Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Everything now all goes back to engagement, which goes back to money. So even if you talk about, you know, back in the 50s, how did a celebrity become a popular celebrity? Back in the 50s was the rise of tabloid, like Confidential Magazine. That was the first time in our history where there was fandom and where fandom was created by a machine behind it. And when the machine gets pushed, you know, then then more money is made and the popularity comes from that. But nowadays it's it's no different. There needs to be the creation of the stand to help you get through it. I mean Taylor Swift is a perfect example of that. For her yeah. to really fall down and 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 have a PR crisis that demolishes her, she is so high up. It is going to take a massive fall for her to come down because she has been buoyed by so many of her stands. So I still think that ideology of creating the idol exists. Mm -hmm. It's get people to like you, get people to follow you, and get people to grow your platform. And then it, it somewhat in a way can inoculate you because you could get through a lot of things unless you touch a third rail. Like Army Hammer touched a third rail. He did not have as um, as much of a base. I mean, yeah, people liked him. He was a good actor. He was starting to become more of a um, respected actor, uh, certainly with his work. But when he brought down, it was, well, now we're talking about sexual abuse. We're talking about cannibalism. What? You know, <laughs> and so that now he fell into that negative algorithm and the clicks and the stories. So it was so difficult for him to come out of it because now he's been branded with that. And the last post that I did, you know, about Army Hammer, like his team behind it sitting and figuring out, okay, what can we do to bring him back? We have to do something. So he had to come out and acknowledge what he did, but he also had to spin. And the fact that his, his accountability article came out on a digital weekly platform, Airmail, run by Graydon Carter, Alessandra Stanley from the New York Times, Graydon Carter from the Vanity Fair. One of a very popular Vanity Fair article was from Army Hammer. So he probably said, okay, we're going to do it again. We'll make lightning strike twice. Army, we're going to do your article. We're going to give you 10,000 words to tell your story. And he meticulously broke down every single, like went through every, it gave him time to go through every single victim and dismantle their story. And then he threw in there how he was sexually abused, created context for why he was somewhat sexually deviant, though it's, that's not the word that it came down to. But I think in the end, the reason why he couldn't get through it is this element of a guy who needs so much control over his reputation that no one was having it. It didn't mm. work for him. Next, Evo Naturals, the only CBD I take, and I got to be honest, about an hour ago, I took some. I love taking CBD products from Next Evo. There's so many different times I like to use it. Today, I had one of those days where you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you get out of bed, you stub your toe, your AirPods aren't connecting, and you find yourself so irritated, and you want to get just a little less irritated. I took a couple of the berry gummies. I'm looking at them right now. And then it's in Chill City. It's fantastic. So I love taking these CBD gummies. They also have capsules. 
If you have too much coffee, if you just had a bad work meeting and you just want a little bit of a life hack to relax. So next Evo Naturals, they are scientifically formulated by a consumer product team with decades of experience and each product is tested to rigorous standards. They use something called Smart Sorb CBD and is proven for 30 times better absorption in the first 30 minutes because you don't want to wait two hours to feel good. So you can make CBD a part of reaching your full potential with Next Evo Naturals. Go to nextevo.com slash podcast and then use the promo code fluently to get 20% off of your first order of $40 or more. So that is 20% off $40 or more at nextevo.com slash podcast with code fluently. It is interesting too, this idea of sometimes when people do apologize, and you talked about this a little bit in your Andrew Callahan video, because you were saying when women apologize, it's easier for them to say like, I was wrong. Oh God, fuck me. Like, I'm so embarrassed. That was awful. But for men, typically in their apologies, they're more likely to do some sort of, well, like, let me explain it to you and like, see it from my perspective. Cause blah, blah, blah. And Army Hammer, this idea of kind of I don't want to say trauma dumping, but kind of trying to explain away your bad behavior by talking about your trauma. And I remember a fascinating example of this was when Kevin Spacey had his abuse allegations and he used that as an opportunity to come out of the closet. And it was so confusing because you want to congratulate someone for coming out of the closet and being brave about their sexual orientation. But at the same time, oh my God, like, why did you do that in light of your allegations. And this is just absolutely insane. What would you say is like the strangest case of this that you've seen where somebody in an attempt to kind of explain away their first scandal, they just completely bare their soul about something that nobody was expecting? Well, and and in many cases, we, we're assuming that they're telling the truth, but we don't know if they're exploiting some trauma in the past. We don't even know if that's true. Uh, so yeah. sometimes it comes across as less genuine than other times. Uh, Kevin Spacey, again, another moment. I remember when the tweet came out about him coming out. I was traveling. I was in a hotel room and I was holding it in my hand, my phone, thought I cannot believe that he is using, he's using this time to come out of the closet, which everyone assumed that he was gay anyway. And so he was trying to overlap pedophilia with homosexuality. So now you are absolutely creating another narrative to a crisis that didn't need to be there. I think his was one of the worst cases because he was one of the original Me Too's. He was, he's like an OG of the Me Too. And mm -hmm. for not, he was another guy who truly thought he was going to get away with it because he probably got away with it for so long, just like Bill Clinton. Yes. You get so used to getting away with it. And the two of them, very good friends, by the way. <laughs> yes, absolutely very good friends. Uh -huh. And that goes back to, again, human behavior and just people who we know in life, people who are liars, people who are dishonest, dis uh, disingenuous people. They are so accustomed to the lie that they're shocked that people wouldn't believe them. And so mm -hmm. looking for that ego in this response and typically it is going to come from the males. Not at all times. I mean, it's not gender specific, but when you're dealing with a heavy ego and a masculine ego, Will Smith, you know, at the Oscars, nothing was going to let that ego come up on stage to accept his Oscar and have it start with an apology to Chris Rock. There was no way his ego was going to allow it. If it were a female, probably the first thing out of him would be, you know, I'm sorry about that. 
But isn't that cr- – like I can't even fathom a woman slapping another woman at the Oscars. No. Like, <laughs> of course Isn't not. that yeah. crazy? We couldn't even say that. That wouldn't even happen in the first place. <laughs> but we cannot dismiss human behavior. I never do. I don't look at a PR crisis analytically first. I mm. purely come at it from the human factor. I want to know what human factor is at play here. And then I can see it through that lens. And then it comes out um, for me. Because someone said it to me over the weekend. He said, you have a very specific brain, how it works. You are looking for certain triggers by what someone does or says to make you decide how you should respond. And I said, yeah, because I work in crisis communication. I'm a risk manager. Yeah. I mean, that's just how my brain works. Well, speaking of the the human factor in terms of how somebody delivers their own apology and, you know, if it coincides with their ego and how they end up apologizing for something, is there also a human reaction you've noticed in terms of accepting and perceiving an apology? Like, is an apology, just to break it down by demographics, are we more likely to accept an apology from an 80-year-old than a 20-year-old? Are we, you know, do people accept apologies from men more easily than they do for women? I feel like, you know, everything's harder for female celebrities. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I feel when you are looking at corrective action that is genuine. You, it's, it's, it goes, it's a person by person, case by case. We're so familiar with celebrities. We've seen them on talk shows. We've seen them on social media. We're so familiar with who they are. We understand what it looks like when they're being genuine. So if their corrective action is fabricated, it's going to fall flat. Like Will Smith, again, a perfect example. His apology was a highly produced video that was scripted, that was ridiculous, that not only did no one pay attention to it, it didn't it didn't improve his reputation. It hurt it even more because it wasn't genuine. But we all know Will Smith. He could have come out with the perfect Will Smith apology if he was just real and he would have gotten through it. So the corrective Mm -hmm. action needs to be a mix of, you know, transparency, some type of accountability and just someone just, it's not about saying you're sorry or apologizing. It's explaining your role and taking accountability for it. And and then and oftentimes, though, you know, atoning for it and whether it's apology or whatever it is, people want to know that you understand what you did was wrong and then we'll let you move on. But if you're not going to acknowledge what you did wrong, you stay right there in the corner and we'll let you know when you can come out. And I think, too, even the psychology of what an apology is, let alone for a public figure, I think a lot of people on day to day life don't know how to do this. And there's this fascinating quiz. I think everybody knows the love languages, the five yes. love languages. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also the five apology languages, and it's written by the same author. And they break down an apology into expressing regret, saying that it's never going to happen again, talking about steps for what they wish they could have done. I forget the specific but there's five examples of it. And it makes sense. Like for me, my apology language is someone expressing regret. So if somebody shows up 20 minutes late to dinner and they say, oh, this will never happen again, I'm still going to be pissed. But if you say to me, I am so sorry, I'm 20 minutes late the entire way over stuck in traffic. I was hating myself for being late. I'll be like, oh my God, like don't even worry about it. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And each person has their one apology language where unless you hit that, you're not scratching that itch and the apology isn't going to be received. And I remember I had a boyfriend years ago where they would do, what's that word that you called where um, you say like, I'm sorry that you felt that way? Oh, a qualified apology? The qualified. And I remember he would say like these really hurtful, shitty things to me and I'd be like, 
hey, like that really hurts my feelings that you said that like you don't want to hang out with me because I'm too boring or something. And then he would go, you know, as the Buddhists say, like, I just said a word, but then you interpreted that word to be hurtful. So you hurt your own feelings with it. It wasn't anything I did. And you see some people saying that sometimes where they're like, oh, sorry that I hurt your feelings by saying this thing. And it's like, no, you should be sorry that you said the thing because it's an, an, an objectively bad thing to say. Well, are, you're not still dating this person, right? Oh, God. Okay. No, no. So what that is, is what we talked about earlier. That is gaslighting. Okay. So they are projecting... <laughs> What they're deflecting it. It's you're giving them what they deserve, but they're immediately putting the shield up so it bounces back at you. So it is your fault. Again, it comes down to human behavior. I have so many friends because I'm at the age right now where everyone's getting divorced, right? After 20 years. So I feel I could I could just put up a shingle right now of all the people, even my text right now, of counseling people through divorce because it is it is no different than a public relations crisis. So my job, mm. I am never off the clock because it is the same framework. It is the same behaviors. It's the same bullshit that people see all the time, whether it's at their job or people telling you that. Gaslighting, narcissism, all of that, it does exist, but it has different terminology. I mean, there's borderline behaviors, there's pathological behavior, there's ego, there's liars. And some people are just so accustomed to getting away with it that they keep doing it until they can't anymore. And also it comes down to reputation. Uh, so many people are driven by, you know, ego personally, but then in the reality world, like I did a post on Sandoval, right? Like Vanderpump rules. Okay. So we're talking about reality television. Everyone knows reality is not reality. We're watching scripted television and it all comes down to money. But what he needs to do as, okay, now he's the villain. He could brand himself as the villain and, mm -hmm. and ride off with a ton of endorsements or maybe even get another spinoff. Who knows? But if you're too much, you're going to become toxic and no one's going to want to touch you. So it's this idea of reputation management. You know, how do you portray yourself as an honest, genuine, authentic person who people like and the most important word is trust. When you've lost well, what's trust. what's funny too is like a authenticity, but do you have to be somebody that people like? Because yeah. I think a lot of people nowadays really like this idea of the anti-hero or I know that they're awful, but I still love them. And I think people are just, they crave authenticity more than they crave somebody being good. And you were saying earlier, right, that somebody who builds all of those stands, it's harder for them to fall. You don't have to be a good person to have a lot of stands. And I'm trying, I, I would be curious for your take who would you say is the public figure, the celebrity, maybe even the brand that has the most stands? Like it would be the hardest for them to fall because they just have such a, you know, reputation of so many people who worship them. I believe, you know, just as a quick pivot, I will say I, I'm working with someone at the moment on television and we're talking about the villain aspect of it. How can you monetize a middle of the road reputation. Maybe you don't want to be the white hat person savior, but you can't be truly way over on the villain side. You have to be interesting. You have to have people care, but it doesn't mean they have to love you mm -hmm. or maybe they just have to trust that you'll entertain them. So it's that it's just this idea of relevancy too. Like, are you relevant and can you build that momentum behind you and that power behind you? So that leads to these brands that are so big, they can't be toppled down. Well, of course, you know, I mentioned Taylor Swift. I mean, the, 
she, during that whole Ticketmaster debacle, it was Taylor Swift against Ticketmaster. She won that. She absolutely won that. Um, the fact that there were Senate hearings against Ticketmaster, all the scrutiny was on Ticketmaster. Bruce Springsteen is another one who kind of started it. Both of them, dynamic pricing, both of them making millions upon millions and millions of dollars off the backs of all these fans, but they came away, you know, as the heroes because Ticketmaster is the villain. So the, the old adage, you know, that you need a platform for acquisition, you know, like if you have a platform, if you have an, a base, it's true. It's really, really hard to bring you down. So I think those are the kind of the brands. They have so much goodwill. Maybe even like a, um, why am I completely blanking Ryan Reynolds? Oh, I was going to oh, say Ryan Van Reynolds. City. I'm like, like someone like even a Ryan Reynolds, right? He yeah. coming at when he started, he was your vanilla actor. There was nothing that special about him. And even when he was dating Alanis Morissette, everyone kind of knew he was kind of an asshole back then. But he was able to create this persona of being the funny, not even snarky guy, just kind of the witty, the witty, nice, funny guy. And he's created this brand now, now that's spun off into alcohol and soccer. He's becoming like a business, like a multi faceted brand he's a, he's an example of someone that would it would take a lot for him to be brought down unless he crossed the line somewhere and then what do you think about people like the kardashians where everyone unequivocally hates them but they are never going to die i know the, the kardashians <laughs> are in their own brand because of when they happened they're so unique and it just just like the ryan reynolds what i talked about like their brand is a business and their brand is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I know you know this. When you get into the world of influencing, there are celebrities out there who are watching their every move and are dying to have the influence that the Kardashians have. I think part of the magic of the Kardashians is the lack of shame they had. They learned from their mother, put yourself out there, be the butt of every single joke, like literally, mm -hmm. right, with Kim Kardashian, <laughs> and it will pay off in the long run for you. And it, and it did. It did, yeah. you know? But I don't know. Will there be more Kardashians? I don't think so. But they are a very unique brand. And it's funny, too, because I think a lot of celebrities get themselves into a crisis or sway public opinion about them in a negative way if they're just around too much and they're overexposed. And the Kardashians are overexposed, but they use each of the sisters in such a strategic way that when something happens to Kim, okay, Kylie, you're up on stage, you go distract them, and then Chloe, you're in the ranks to do XYZ. So the Kardashians are always being talked about, but it's never one individual for too mm -hmm. long because you can always spread them around. It's it, They're absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and we, and we don't have that anymore. I mean, we, we don't have that type of unit and you're absolutely right. And they use the media the same way. Like when Kim Kardashian was dealing with Balenciaga, I mean, she had to address it. But then as soon as she came out and addressed it, we were flooded with the Yahoo's yes. and all these online, you know, <laughs> online um, news, news sites with the most insipid, dumb stories about Kim Kardashian. Do we yeah. care? Like Kim and Saint go to a game. Nobody cares, but it's SEO. It's something yes. that is tamping down the Balenciaga story as we move on. So they also understand how to use that piece. And as you well. can see that so often too. I remember Army Hammer House Tour, Army Hammer Real Estate. If you put in his name, that's all that's coming out lately because all of these mm -hmm. pieces are doing fluff about that. We don't care. We want to hear about which house is he eating somebody in, <laughs> but no, they're just going to talk about his decor. Yes. 
That's funny. Absolutely wild. Well, Molly, I cannot thank you enough for coming on here. I'd love to have you come back again in a couple of months and we can analyze some of these like celebrities, uh, apologies and scandals and how we would have handled it. But I really encourage anyone listening to go check out your podcast. And it's so fun how your different episodes will break down individual celebrities' responses. But then you also just have some great tips on there as well. And you've been podcasting since 2018 and some of your earlier episodes, right? About how to not use filler words or how to speak confidently. Those are all really interesting topics too. Yeah. Well, I, I, I definitely have, have morphed, you know, I've, that podcast has been around for a while. The version that I have now is inspired by TikTok in the sense that I like to take these flash moments, these zeitgeist moments that are there that everybody's talking about but break it down from a professional communicator's point of view. Like, what can we learn about it? I, that's a whole different podcast of people like you that can really talk about all these moments and all the details about it. I, as a professional, I want to get, I want to have the same conversations that you all are having, but what can I pull away professionally to help you either in your life or in your job from a PR point of view? So thank you. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on and excited to have you here. And everybody go check out Molly on TikTok and her podcast as well. Thank you so much.